out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the lead space band. It is the one and only, the Edsel Auctioneer, because I spoke to their guitarist and vocalist very recently, Ashley Horner, to find out more about life, love, poetry, and much, much more. Anyway, look, this is the interview. It's been broken up into three parts, each one just as fascinating. As each other. Anyway, look, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very interesting subject that was the early formative years and those, yes, moments that change everything. Anyway, Ashley's going to tell us more, or Ash, to his friends. Anyway, take it away. This is fascinating. Oh, yeah, take notes. I will test you at the end. Um, I, I did, and it, and it, it was a little bit later than that. Um, I, was born in the, I was born in 69, and the and I lived in this little village on the edge of the Yorkshire Dales. And my dad had all of the Beatles albums on cassette, and he had a copy of Space Oddity. Right, uh, and that was pretty much it in the house. Um, and then in the summer of the summer when I was thirteen, I kind of looked at where I was at and, and and went, well, you go to school and you go fishing. And that's about it. And you play, you play, it was Yorkshire, you play cricket. Right. Um, and I thought, well, what do you want to do? And I thought, well, I'd quite like to be in the Beatles. Uh, and actually, at that time, I, I think I kind of did know, but the idea of the Beatles still seemed really recent to me because that's the music that was in the house. So I thought, well, they've got two quite good singers, but, you know, maybe the guitarist could, he, he could maybe step aside. So that was the reason I started playing guitar to to be in the Beatles. Right, the reformed Beatles in the. In well, the I, don't, I don't think I was thinking about them being reformed. In my head, I think they were still kind of going in some form. Right, that's good. Well, that's a, that's a good one. So you're you're sort of obviously because because I sort of grew up in the sort of kind of the rural landscape of East Anglia, which was very countryside. And I suppose with my parents, you know, during the during the period they got married, I think they just got rid of all their possessions and sold them because they never they were you know the generation that never borrowed money. So we we got yeah. a record player in the early seventies. That my dad had terrible country and western taste, which is still the same today. Actually, Boxcar William, people like that. Yeah, never, never did it for me. Never did it. But <laughs> I had an older brother who who was into that prog world of the seventies with you know people like Yes and Genesis, Wishbone Ash. But he did have like two other albums, Deep Purple and Black Sabbath, and that kind of made a big impression. But also, this was like seventy four. He had um, Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road and the Beatles Sergeant Pepper. And at the time, it was like I was you know I was pretty young. I'd sort of sneak into his room and play these records constantly. Think God, I'm kind of mesmerised. But I didn't have any. It, I just realised you know later on that the Beatles had only just broken up during that period you know they'd only been a few years without the Beatles but it seemed like a, a completely different time you know that it's it'd been and gone and they were just over weren't they you know then it was all yeah glad. well well that's the thing like, like later on when I got into people like the Velvet Underground and stuff like that that seemed so far away in the sort of mid-80s from from the mid eighties, whereas the Beatles two years earlier had felt really close to me. I don't know why that was. Um, mainly probably because because I grew up on them. Um, yes. And and I and and I had the lucky thing where I had an older brother 
who was like four years older than me, and he kind of got into post-punk. So I was hearing some stuff, things like The Undertones and Stiff Little Fingers and Susie and the Banshees from his bedroom, although I think he only ever had singles. Um, and, uh, and, and the other thing I really got into after that Beatles moment was I really got into the beat. Um, and the only and that kind of got me into ska and reggae when I was like kind of 12, 13. And the only place I could hear that was John Peel. So then I actually started to listen to John Peel to listen to people like Misty and Roots and culture and stuff like that. And then that brought me into contact with things like, you know, the wedding present early on and stuff like that. Yes. Well, they, they, you did mention a bit earlier, you know, at the, at the beginning, there was only a few gatekeepers, weren't there? There was like, you know, the, the three weekly music papers. It had a huge circulation, but there was just, you know, basically John Peel, possibly Janice Long and, um, yeah, Kid Jensen and possibly Annie Nightingale. But it was John Peel and, and the NME with me. So that was like, that was the two places. And so I got to that age in sort of 83, I suppose, where it was like recorded John Peel, you know, tried to record it most nights on my trusty TDK D90 cassette, because I never listened to it live, but I'd have to listen to the cassette endlessly to kind of pick out which songs were quite good or what bands I liked. And, and so it was, yes, the reggae period of, ta- of um, Sly and Robbie and the Taxi Gang, which was just yeah, amazing. Yeah. And then people like Gregory Isaacs and Dennis Bryan and, and all that other stuff. So though I was a real indie kid, you know, anything that he played like, oh, Public Enemy, yo, bum rush the show, must go and buy that. And, you know, seeing all these very obscure and terrible, you know, the sound quality of those early rap gigs just were horrendous on the eardrums. It was just, yeah, they were quite brutal, really, those gigs. But um, you had to, you know, John Peel played it, and I just thought, that's it, I'm just going to be into it. And, well, and, there was also, and there was also a compilation, there was those compilation street sounds, didn't they? Morgan Khan put together, mm. and I was go and get those with great excitement. This pasty little white kid from the countryside. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. yeah. So yes, John Peel was the one. So when did you sort of, apart from your dream of being with the Beatles, when did you get a you know a musical instrument? Um. Well, that that summer, I said to my dad, "Can I have an electric guitar?" And my dad said, "No." And he had a guitar in the house, and he said, "Look, sh- show me that you want to play." And I think I played. So it would have been the summer, and I think that. The next eight months, I really, you know, I really practiced a lot. And my birthday's May, May the 1st. In fact, my birthday was this weekend. Um, and um, he finally got me a guitar and an amp, and it was a, it was a very poor quality K single coil. quite beautiful to look at it was one of those I don't what do you call the the, the orangey into black sort of uh finish uh sunburst I think they call it sunburst and uh and it was actually possibly the worst instrument I've ever ever touched in my life it was it was you know properly awful um but I kept playing and and um I remember there was a kid at school who was really into the Who, who played drums, and and he and I tentatively tried to put a band together when we were about fifteen, and he used to believe that Keith Moon used to come through the wall in the night and teach him how to play drums. Nice. 
it was it was called Paul. He was he was mental, <laughs> and uh, and I would kind of we would I think we would play should I stay or should I go because they were quite easy chords. We 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 were doing Clash songs and stuff like that or trying to, and I left the amp with him at his house and he blew it up, um, which was a which was quite shocking because I hadn't really owned anything before. <laughs> um, and he didn't have the money to replace it, did he? But no, he didn't know. And, and that was kind of the beginning. And then I got a paper round uh, and bought a Westone, which was equally awful as a guitar. And I think that Westone's probably on that one of the recordings I've given you, actually. Oh, excellent. Uh, this is yeah, great. Yeah, I think that's the first guitar. That's on It's Gone. And then, and then later on, I, when I was about 18, I... I I saw an advert in in what was called the Champion Shopper, and the Champion Shopper was basically the the local uh, kind of Gumtree slash Craigslist um, where people would put adverts in to flog guitars and stuff. And a guy was selling a, a Fender Jaguar, and I'd never I'd never really heard of one. And I went to have a look, and, and this guy sold me like a 1973 Fender Jaguar for 160 quid in a pub in mm. Ripon. And, and I've still got the guitar. I mean, it's and and that's one of the main guitars I use throughout playing. Uh, I did actually sell it twenty years ago, but I bought it back five years ago. Oh, I found it on country again. <laughs> oh, did it feel quite emotional finding the the original guitar? That yeah, yeah, oh yeah. I mean, I always uh, when when I when I didn't sell it, I traded it for for a for a nice Telecaster, which I've still got as well. Um, but but it felt so you know I haven't I haven't done any music since Ed Slotchenier and, and Pale Saints kind of finished yes um, and but I still play I still play sort of two or three times a week I'm not in bands anymore I got I used to get terrible stage fright so that was one of the reasons why I ended up stopping doing it to be honest yes. um, but. Uh, it felt really wrong to sort of spend five, six years with an instrument and then not have it. Um, but maybe quite, it was right to let it go and then it, for it to come back. Well, it's quite emotional. There was a guy, a bass player, who was in a band called the Rockettes, who, I mean, it was kind of an amazing story, but they were a rockabilly band who got sort of picked up by somebody, Lee Black Childers, who was this guy who had a bit of a David, I know Bowie, the name. Yeah, yeah. David Bowie connection, who said, oh, look, you look great. In a slightly, you know... I don't know. It was all a bit, yeah. So anyway, he he took them over to New York, even though they couldn't play. And he had this this amazing bass. But then, being in New York, things got stolen. And and then last year, well, this year, I think someone saw it in in a sort of a, a sort of secondhand shop and said, "Look, that's Smutty Smith's bass player." And he's like, "No, it isn't. It's all like it says Smutty Smith on the bottom." It's like so. There was this kind of <laughs> so it kind of got picked up, and and it's going to be returned to him who. You know, oh, like, that's fantastic. It really was. Yeah, it was a bit of like, no, he can't have it. It's like, well, it is his and it was stolen. So I think it should be. And eventually the person had to give it back. And um, there you go. It does It does kind of happen. I think 40 years later, Smutty has now got his, you know, bass guitar. So um, very heartwarming. It's a still. nice one. It's a nice one. But look, you're from Leeds. Now, Leeds, I, yeah. I've done a few interviews with people from like the Girls at Our Best, who we loved yeah, so yeah. much. And then there was obviously, is it the Parachute Men who were from Leeds? Yeah, yeah. And you can't. We're in the same place as them. And then there was obviously um, Chumbawamba. 
and the mm. great squatting scene of Leeds, as well as the golf scene of Sisters of Mercy. So, so because I do have, you know, various friends who lived in Leeds in that late 80s period, living in squats with people like Dunst and Boff and people like that. So yeah. were you, did you sort of pick up on that anarcho-punk scene that people loved during the 80s? Um, not, no, not really. Um, I mean, I, I didn't move to Leeds till I was 19. And so that would have been like 88 or something like that. Um, and because up to that point, um, really that, the the kind of, there wasn't really, we weren't part, we, we were part of a scene in Harrogate, which was kind of quite, which was very C86 and uh, a little bit twee. Um, I mean, it wasn't a scene, but there were people who were doing, playing band, playing in bands. So um, actually, there's a band from Birmingham called Pram, and Rosie from Pram was from Harrogate, and they had a band. It was a guy called Matthew who had fantastic, who had a fantastic bowl cut. Um, and there was also a, a metal band called Acid Rain, and we kind of hung out with those kids from from Harrogate uh, to a degree. And then when we moved to Leeds, the goth thing had kind of run its you know, it was kind of already over, and the, and I we played a gig with Chumbawamba when when I was I think when I was sixteen, right at, at Men with Hill Peace Camp. So we knew of them, but we weren't part of that scene at all. In, um, yeah, and Chumbawamba went on before us than uh, <laughs> at like sort of four o'clock in the afternoon at, at Men with Hill, and when we thought this is weird because there's like four hundred people there, and we were going on after them. And, and as soon as Chumbawamba had played, everybody stormed the fence, and so there was there was no no audience for us to play to because oh, everybody that, got arrested. Excellent! That is so eighties, isn't it? <laughs> that is so eighties. So we were part of that. We were part of that eighties kind of. Yeah, I suppose we were kind of part of that. You were part of the anarcho vegetarian anti McDonald's kind of scene because that's that was Leeds, I suppose. But when we when we kind of went when we moved to Leeds and started trying to make the music music happen there, which was basically Aidan and I, Aidan who sings in the Edsels, we we moved on to the same street as uh, Ian and Jock from Pale Saints. They actually found us the flat, right? Uh, I think was one of the cheapest flats in the whole of Leeds, um, and uh, that we basically had our scene was the street that we lived on it was harold avenue which was part of burley uh, and there were parachute men and and uh age of chance and stuff like that but we were we were the new kids we were we were and and so when so when uh, when pale saints took off and the edsels kind of got their first peel session nobody really knew who we were because we kind of arrived there and it happened very quickly I mean, within six months of us being in Leeds, we got our first bill session. Right. I know that's that's always a blessing, isn't it, from the Pope? Because it's quite yeah. interesting, because I suppose in a really simplistic world, that it was like there was the punk and then post-punk, and then there was a bit of a, a jiggling going on. I mean, obviously you had sort of the goth scene, and then you had sort of, um, I suppose there was a news paisley scene, but then there's 83, the Smiths appear for me. They are such a yeah. And from 83 to 87, it was like the Smiths were there. And then you had all those other bands like the June Brides and the 
I suppose the wedding present, the go-betweens, the, the triffids and the chills. And, you know, there was a bit of a vibe. But then sort of when they split up, there was that, oh, right, what happens next kind of feeling. There was a sort of the party was kind of slightly over on one level. But then the next, what I've realised, the next wave of 16 to 18-year-olds come along. They go, oh, those old people who were around in 83, who cares about them? And then ecstasy kind of was kind of rearing its little... Well, well, well I think there's a... I think there was... I think there was the period that you talked about, which was basically up to when the Smiths kind of split up and you write June Brides and all of that. And that wasn't, I was hearing that, but I wasn't going to see those bands. And then there's a period where ecstasy doesn't quite exist, but there's kind of like this dub club scene going on uh, before kind of Happy Mondays kick off. And that, that there's, that's an interesting period, which is about 80, it's kind of Stone Roses, first album uh through to never mind by nirvana right and the and the scene that we were most most kind of tight with was the kind of pre-grunge scene yes the pre-grunge because i remember there was this kind of i suppose it was the north london world that was like my bloody valentine and then i remember seeing silverfish supporting them and there yeah. was it was Carter, the unstoppable sex machine, who was slightly raised. And then there was like the faith healers. And there was that kind of very grubby little squat scene in London. You know, there was a sort of a yeah. place called the ambulance station. But then I think it was 89 when I saw the Pearl Saints supporting Lush. And, and they came about. And Lush... Which gig was that with, with Lush? Um, with the Pearl Saints supporting them. at the That was at the Norwich Arts Centre. It was a bit of a... Oh, flip. yeah, I remember that gig, yeah. Yeah, I was playing with Pearl Saints then, yeah. Oh, so you would have been at the Norwich Arts Centre. I was at... Uh, yeah, I was at the Norwich Arts Centre that night, yes. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. it was exciting. It was both, you know, the 4AD bands, because we'd obviously gone to see, you know, the Throw Muses and Pixies on one bill at the, you know... Oh, yeah, that was... Yeah, I remember that bill in Leeds. That was a cracker. And it was like, you know, and we just took it all for granted, didn't we? Just, oh, yeah, you know, whatever. It's fine. We'll just go yeah, to yeah. those. And then, obviously, the, the other one. So you were in the... So how... So just tell us, Gardner, I should have... Um, so you were in the... <laughs> so how does that... So you're in... What band are you in to begin with? Edsel's. Well, I was always in Edsel Auctioneer. Right. Um, and, and when we moved to the, the, the uh, back, two-bedroom back-to-back, so it's, a ha- it's, ha- to the, it's not a flat, it's a half a house. Is it a bit like, because I've been to Hebden Bridge and met some friends there, and they had these kind of amazing houses, and there was washing across the street, and it was all very happening and, and sort of, you know, sexually fluid as well. It was very... <laughs> <laughs> so they were sort of like, I just remember this friend saying, oh, yeah, that guy, you know, he's gay, but he did have a one-night affair with this woman, now he's a father. It's like, oh, God, it's all so hip and groovy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, far too hip for me. <laughs> yeah. Although there used to be a good record shop there, and we used to... Was it Hebden Bridge? Actually, there's a PR company from Hebden Bridge, isn't there? I used to deal there with... Was a, there was a really good little record shop. I think it was Hebden Bridge. It was either Hebden Bridge or Halifax. And the it was the only place that you could buy big star records in the mid-'80s. Right. Good I'm pretty sure it was the only... Well, in Yorkshire. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, was it? No, well, so I'm when I, I knew Pale Saints for very early on because we met... We met uh, Jock and Chris. So Jock played guitar, Graham, Graham played guitar, and uh, Chris played drums. And they were looking for a band. 
and they'd been to see us play when we were Valerie and the Malchicks in New in Harrogate. Nice. Um, and basically, uh, we had a shared love of Echo and the Bunnymen, and we basically there wasn't really a link because they were they were a bit older than us, and they were kind of living in Leeds, but we would hang out a little bit. And so when we moved to Leeds, it was they were the only people we knew, literally. And 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 like I say, they found us a house after we'd looked for about two days and found nothing we could afford. Mm. And they found us this house on this, on there. We were at number seventeen, and I think they were at number twenty-seven or something like that. Um, and I'm, I've forgotten why I'm telling this story. Yes, just how you managed to sort of be. Oh yeah. So, so they they then they did it. They'd done a couple of demos and a couple of gigs, and we. The Valerie and the Malchicks had gone back down to being a two-piece, Aidan and I, because our drummer, uh, Martin, Martin Westwood, and Tom, Tom Winterburn, who was Aidan's brother who played bass, both went off to art college. Uh, they were both really good painters. And so we'd recorded three songs for Egg Records up in Glasgow for Jimmy at Egg Records, and he hated them. Um, and and the band basically had split up. Aidan and I had decided we'd give it a go in Leeds and try and find a, a new drummer and a bass player. And and um, during that time, I was, that sort of six months, Pale Saints went into the studio and recorded three songs, one of which was Sight of You. And they said, look, we're going to be doing a couple of gigs. We need another guitarist. Ash, do you want to play guitar with us? And I said, yeah, of course. I mean, because basically we were all on the dole. Mm. And... It was it was a really simple yes, and Edsel's were not anywhere near busy enough uh, because because they were they had a, a demo tape that nobody liked, um, <laughs> and and so the first gig that I did with Pale Saints was a little gig supporting Lush before Lush signed to Four AD at the Camden Falcon, right. Yeah, classic, uh, classic sort of March night. Camden Falcon was like red hot inside, and and we supported them. And everybody was down to see Lush because they were the hot ticket. And Four AD were there, and Pale Saints played basically the first album as the support band without any talking, with links, all of the all of the things that are on that first record. And we were that night. We were just fucking really good. <laughs> Excuse my French. Yes. Um, um, and Lush had so much expectation on on them, and they went on, and 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 they just it was too much. I mean, I think there was far too much expectation on them. Right. And, and they had a they had a stinker. Um, so, uh, sorry, sorry, Mickey and Emma. Yes. Uh, but, but but they did have a stinker, and 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 they were you know. I mean, I, we ended up going off, we toured Europe with them and I, I used to really enjoy their sets, but yeah, this, this night was not the best. So was Phil King on bass at that stage? No. Um, what was the name of the bass player? I guess it was Chris on drums, wasn't it? Yeah, Chris was playing drums and I got on really well with Chris because he was uh, from Carlisle, so he was from quite similar sort of territory. Uh, I mean, obviously that first night, we didn't really know each other, but we got to know each other from touring. Yes, um, I think Mickey's book's coming out this year. I saw, yeah, I saw a memoir. Yes, a memoir. 
Well, you remember some of it. <laughs> yes, that'll be interesting, really. Because I did, I did yeah. an interview with her, but and I also did one with Phil once, and um, I don't think I'll be able to ever be able to broadcast that interview because it's. I've only met I've only met Phil once, which was when Lush reformed and they did a gig up here in Newcastle, and, and he just made me laugh a lot. Uh, yeah, yes. he was very funny. Well, he's got an amazing CV. I mean, he's played with so many people. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Stuart, it might have been. It was was it called Stuart Rippon? He had a sort of slight blonde bowl cut, and 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 he was with the band, I think, for the first up until all through the first EPs, and then when they did a proper record, I think he left. Right on. Yes, I don't yeah. Know. It was an. It was a. It was. A, it was a. It was a nice lad. Yeah, they must um, be, it must have been kind of an exciting time because obviously they just took off so quickly, didn't they? And everyone, they just became the darlings. And I remember, I don't know, seeing them at various gigs because I used to love Silverfish. I don't know why, but I, I was a bit obsessed with Silverfish for about two years. I sort of, um, yeah, and, and they'd often be supporting them and um, they would be supporting Lush because Lush just went into that other league, didn't they? Quite yeah, quickly. yeah. Yeah, they did. Well, uh, at that time, when for a... Because with Pale Saints, when 4AD signed them, suddenly it went from, you know, 30 people and a dog in pubs in Doncaster and what have you, to residential studios in Reading, where the local restaurant Michael Caine et had and stuff like that. It was all very bizarre. <laughs> and, and, and apart from Ian, the singer, Ian Masters, we, they were, we were just like... Yorkshire indie kids, you know, and it, it was quite a, it was a little bit of a baptism of fire, really, to sort of hang out with this kind of arty London crowd. Well, yes, absolutely. I think they'll be making, yeah. I think... Although the, I'm, not, I'm not saying Lush were arty London crowd. Lush were very lovely. Um, but, yeah, but, you you know, to be at the 4AD offices on Alba, Alma Road and, you know, them take it, you, you go down and they take you out for lunch and, like, Nobody would ever take me out for lunch. I well, know, it'd have been just a chippy, <laughs> wouldn't it, in sort of Bradford? Well, if we didn't know, it'd be an evening in Bradford, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Harry Ramsden's. <laughs> yes, it was. It was. They they seemed very worldly, didn't they? Worldly wise and sophisticated. And They I, did, yeah. And I think I think Murray Lachlan Young is going to be doing a musical of uh, Britpop um, coming out soon. So um, remember the million pound poet, L- Murray Lachlan. Young? I do remember. Yes, of course, I remember. Remember that happening. Yeah, I wonder if you've ever seen that million pounds. Yeah, yes, I did an amazing. Or on a sliding scale as to how many books he sold. Well, <laughs> yes. I did an interview. Well, God, this is a bit off track, but I did an interview with him, and he and he said it really was the most horrendous experience of his life. You know, you get built up, and then suddenly everybody at that record label just gets pulled. And then your life just disappears. And he said that what you do when you're, you, you know, that happens is that you go and buy yourself, you, you go and live in the woods for several years. You, bu- you, bu- you build a bar, this is what he said, and you spend, you know, two years in the wood, woods and then eventually you come out feeling slightly sane again. He said it's, well, real, it's, it's real insanity. This is, this is uh, the Kevin Shields story, isn't it? He didn't, build, he didn't go to the wood, though. He just built a studio and disappeared into the studio. For <laughs> I know. Dear old, poor, I felt sorry for Alan McGee, because, God, you know, he was mortgaging his life on that album, wasn't he, really? Uh, he, he, he ended up all right, though, didn't he? He, he did. I don't think, I don't think he has to worry too much. He, he has a happy ending. So then, look, so, you, so how long are you with the Pearl Saints at this stage? 
So I, I ended up playing with Pale Saints for about a year, about 18, 18, 19 months. So from that gig in London to the first album and then touring that first album. So I did, I played Glastonbury with them um, oh in 1990 when Happy Mondays were headlining that night. And they nicked all our rider. Sean Ryder nicked our rider. <laughs> I think, uh, the, were the Cure playing that festival? I seem to remember there was a hint. Don't think so. Maybe. It was, but the thing is that we basically, because the Ed Selectioneer took off as well at, the same, at a similar time. So I was doing a tour with Pale Saints and then doing a tour with the Ed Selectioneer. And I think in... I have this figure in my head that in 1990 I did 176 gigs, but I can't have done because <laughs> I would have been de- I'd be dead by now if I had. Um, <laughs> you were young, but it's fine. Yeah, well, I was young. Yeah. We, I mean, we've I, I toured Japan with Pale Saints. We did ten days in Japan, four gigs. That was kind of ridiculous. I would imagine they loved you. Did you did you have a sort they of did. did you have a did you have a kind of a uh, yeah? Because they love Sarah Records in in sort of Japan. I mean, yeah. yeah. Certain bands that are just not known in here, you know, is, is huge in Japan. Oh, we were like the Rolling Stones in Japan. Yeah. Well, then People slept, like, there'd be a coterie of about 12 to 15 teenage women, girls, whatever, I'm not quite sure how old they were, um, who, who would be allowed to sleep in the lobby of the hotel to watch us have breakfast in the morning. God, that's a bit weird, them. isn't it? That's just it was a bit weird, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, did you ever have a sort of, oh, my God, what should I do moment? Or were you a little bit like Rod Stewart, keeping your, you know, options open with your solo album as well as the faces? Did you did you sort of have a, how do you sort no. of juggle? No, oh, no, because, it, I mean, I, I, there was, I never did any writing with, with Pale Saints. I was, I was a guitar player. And um, with the Edsels, uh, Aidan did most of the, well, Aiden would come up with the bare bones of the song and we'd develop it together. So he was my songwriting partner. Um, and the Edsels were the band that were closest to my heart with regards to the music that we made. Um, and the Pale Saints, I, I used to love playing live with them. I used to find the traveling really tedious. Um, it was really, it was kind of an edu- it was a massive education because I'd never been really been to Europe or anything like that. So we were going to places like Berlin and uh, Brussels and stuff like that, and and staying in, in ho- <laughs> staying in hotels that were far nicer than the house I was living in. <laughs> um, uh, but in the end, I became just a hired hand, and 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 originally it was it was I was going to help them out, and we and we'd see how it developed. But I was never ever going to join the band. Right. Because, I, I, you know, Aidan and I had been working together since I was 17 by this point. And, and it was, I really loved what the Edsels were doing. Um, and we were, and we, and we were the Edsels. I mean, that was it. The core was Aidan and I, and it grew into a proper band. And we had some amazing advent. You know, we ended up touring America on no money and stuff like that. And that was, it was a wonderful uh kind of from from 17 to 25 for eight years it was my full-time life and it was brilliant yes well it's, it's um and, and i love the, the pale saints journey and i love that first album but but um yeah i couldn't take any credit for how good they were no 
So look, oh. so eighty nine though you you get the sort of you get the John Peel session, don't you? Which is yeah. you, you sort of record four tracks: Brick Wall, Dawn, Between Two Crimes, Place in the Sun, and um, Blind Hurricane. So did you yeah. at that stage? I mean, obviously, had things changed from that early cassette that you know the label hated? Well, no, that that label it never they never released they never released it. Um, they paid for the recording. Um, and Egg Records basically uh, didn't like it at all, and they let us have the recordings back. So we set that was that was recorded in I think the summer, early summer of nineteen eighty eight. So the song that I've given you, Blind Hurricane, is from that. That was one of the songs that we recorded for Egg Records that never got released. That became part of the Peel session, right? And we sent the three songs as a as a demo to John Peel and we got a letter, a letter arrived on sort of headed BBC notepaper, Radio Radio One notepaper. And I thought that um, Ian and, and Jock down the road had made a forgery and were just trying to take the piss because I didn't believe <laughs> it. And I didn't, I didn't reply for like, well, I didn't let on that they'd got me in, until like three weeks later. And I said, yeah, yeah, you did really, that was really good. Well done, lads. You got me. Is it real or not? And they said, we didn't send it to you. And then I rang up um, John Walters, John Peel's producer, and he was like, oh, we we just didn't think you existed. <laughs> They'd been sitting there waiting, expecting some, because we didn't have a phone or anything. Yes, the they great phone box. You know, it was, you know, it was a letter. And... Um, and he said, well, will you, would you like to come in and do a session? And I said, yeah, yeah. And, they, and he said, when? I said, six weeks. He went, yeah, all right. Um, and at that point, we didn't have a band. The Edsels didn't have a band. It was Aidan and I, and we didn't have a drummer. We didn't have a bass player. And so we then borrowed Chris, uh, Chris Cooper from Pale Saints, and we worked up four songs, and I played bass on the Peel session and then overdubbed my guitars. And 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 we and recorded those four songs. Fantastic! My God, yes. this was kind of an exciting time because though one scene was slightly finishing and changing, there was the sort of excitement of, like I said, you know, that that throwing muses and the pixies, and then we had, you know, I remember sort of Nirvana sort of supporting Tad on that first album, yeah, you know, yeah. that first tour at uh, Doing Bleach, which I thought was a great album, and then you know, obviously we we have the Seattle sound. So did you? I mean, and there were people like you know, was it the Saint the Census Sings and Mega City Four? So did that feel like yes, this is a bit of a scene. We're definitely on the zeitgeist. Uh, well, it was quite. Uh, there was there were two bands that I really liked from kind of that post. Where is it? What would you describe it? Is it? It's kind of post punk, straight edge, pre grunge. Um, so there was Lemonheads. Oh yes, and Buffalo Tom, mm-hmm. um, and then and and obviously at the top of that tree, there was Dinosaur Junior, or Dinosaur as they were at the time, um, and Aiden, Aiden, and uh, Aiden had turned me on to Husker Du, and Husker Du had kind of split up, just as. Well, I, what, did they split up in 85, was it, or something like no, that? No, that was 87, because they did that album. 87. They did the one, the where, I, this is going to Oh, the out. Warehouse Songs and Stories album, yeah, that everybody hates, but I... 
Indeed, 1987, a fine year for music. That is part one of the interview. This has been the C86 Show, David Eastall. Do click on part two, which is coming to you very soon. Anyway, Ash, thanks a lot.